We're going to talk tonight about which which is which. <laughs> or in other words, we're going to talk a little bit about witchcraft and the occult. And since we're here at Tetelestai Christian Center, and I'm sure you know that the pastor is Randolph Michelson, his wife is Joanna Michelson, famous for, written a number of outstanding books, one of which is The Beautiful Side of Evil and so forth. But one of, the, one of her many, many gifts uh, is her quip for puns. <laughs> I know of no one that's more skilled with puns than Joanna. And one of my favorite favorites of her one-liners is, have you ever found a happy medium? You know. <laughs> so stealing that line of hers, that could be a subtitle for what we want to talk about tonight a little bit. We're doing a little series on Halloween. It's interesting that once a year, we as a culture face this peculiar holiday. And on the one hand, we are immersed in our culture with all kinds of pagan vestiges, the names of our weeks and virtually all the major holidays. Upon uh, research, you'll unravel the fact that almost all of them go back at least to Rome and some of its rituals. Certainly most of them even go back to Babylon and so forth. And so many of them may trouble the serious Christian, but none more than the peculiar holiday that we, some, we, we sort of dismiss in a childish way, uh, Halloween. And yet the more we think about it, the more we explore it, the more sinister it becomes. It is not just a casual thing to shrug off uh, casually. It is, in fact, a very, very serious holiday. And uh, as Pat Matriciana has uh, so, so uh, colorfully pointed out, for a Christian to celebrate Halloween is like asking a Holocaust survivor to celebrate Hitler's birthday. In fact, by the way, Pat at the Las Vegas conference did an interesting thing. He opened up the conference discussing this conversation he had with John F. Kennedy. And he was, of course, being facetious and, 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 and doing a parody of our first lady's conversation with Eleanor Roosevelt. So he was, of course, just kidding. But it's interesting that in seriousness, neo-paganism, the new age, call it what you will, is now politically correct. In fact, federally enforced in our schools. And so we discover, we'll discover more and more the occult in its various shapes and sizes and various forms is becoming increasingly promoted in our society. Even in our popular entertainments, we find Ghost Dad with Bill Cosby. We find Ghost with uh, Patrick Swayze and Ghostbusters and other, other forms of entertainment with a light touch indeed and yet uh, promoting the, this whole uh, um, area. Now there are, of course, if you've traveled at all, you know there are psychic hotlines being promoted everywhere, 900 numbers and so forth, and I think uh, Dave Hunt and others would even put the Myers Clinics in that category as close cousins. The area of the occult is real, it's active, it's malevolent, and it's out to do you harm. And one of the things I hope you'll take away from this evening's discussion is the reality that these things are not to be dismissed as colorful pastimes and not to be dismissed as casual games. They are serious. They are the results of deceptions by very powerful sentient beings whose skill and weaponry is primarily in the realm of deceit, deception. And uh, so it makes it increasingly difficult. Now this whole idea of witchcraft is a bizarre subject in our day to many. And yet we find, if I, uh, from the polls and so forth, there are more witches today in England and America than there ever has been before since the Reformation. Time magazine estimated that there are at least 160,000 practicing witches in America, about half that many in Britain, and that's probably a gross underestimate. The United States 
is believed to harbor the fastest growing and most highly organized body of Satanists and occultists in the entire world. Now, when we speak of the occult, this term can embrace a broad collection of things, including mediums, and the more popular term today for the same thing are channelers, clairvoyants, psychics, spiritists, diviners, mystics, gurus, shamans, psychical researchers, yogis, uh, psychic and holistic healers, astral travel, astrology, mysticism, Ouija boards, tarot cards, contact with the dead, UFOs, we'll talk a little more about that, and thousands of other practices which virtually defy cataloging. Include Satanism, astrology, the Kabbalah, Gnosticism, Theosophy, witchcraft, and many forms of what would be called serious magic. And uh, includes um, activities seeking the acquisition of hidden things, things which are expressly forbidden by God in the Bible. And when you look at look for these things and look for the list, don't overlook the pulpits of the churches in America. Because it includes the doctrines that Paul warned Timothy about. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Let's remind ourselves of 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Paul, in counseling his young protege, said, Now the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, speaketh expressly that in the latter times. What is that? The synonym for the latter days, the end times, and so forth. Some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Then it goes on, giving some examples. Doctrines of demons, strange idea. We often think of doctrines as maybe ill-considered, doctrines that are emerge from the, the less than fully informed. No, it's much more serious than that. You've got doctrines of demons which are uh, knowingly, consciously engineered, tailored, designed to deceive. As some of you know, my partner and I were the guys that brought Walter Martin from Wayne, New Jersey to the West Coast with his Christian Research Institute. Walter and I were good friends. I was on his board for many years. Walter estimated that over 100 million Americans were actively or peripherally involved in these areas. And that may have been, again, an underestimate. A recent University of Chicago national poll revealed that 67% of Americans now profess a belief in the supernatural. And 42% of these believe that they have been in contact with someone who died. Now, another way to do this, rather than bore you with more statistics from publications and so forth, go to any secular bookstore and do a windage guess at how much of the floor space is relegated to the New Age or the occultic areas. In contrast, how much floor space is given to religion as a topic or Christianity as a topic. It's become very, very obvious that the occult and the New Age, these materials are bigger than any other religious interest. And don't fault the stores. Their job is to be responsive to consumer demand. What they have determined is that's where the demand is. That's where the interest is, by a factor of probably eight to one. Now also, as you I think are also aware, but let me just remind you that the occult is also behind more grisly crimes than we generally care to imagine. And uh, I think most of us may remember the episode of Charlie Manson and the bloody mess in the murder of Sharon Tate. I have a particular interest in that because I can remember being asked to meet with Sue Atkins, who was his girlfriend. When she was, obviously she was arrested, she was in solitary confinement out in Chino. 
and she asked to see me because she had heard the tapes. I should point out to you that um, she was a follower of Anton LaVey, the head of the Church of Satan up in Haight-Ashbury and all that, and he, she was, of course, part of the, the Manson family, as they called themselves. And uh, she was one of the groupies, whatever you want to call it, that uh, was arrested as part of that whole Sharon Tate mess. And uh, she did come to the Lord Jesus Christ, and she wrote a book called Child of Satan, Child of God. And since uh, she had heard some of my tapes, she asked to see me. And I'll never forget that. Naturally, when I had this opportunity, I quickly got a copy of a book and did a little homework just to, so I, you know, be up to speed on this. And on the book, they had a picture of her when she was arrested, a frail, gaunt, haggard, tragic-looking figure. Uh, when I was able to meet with her in Chino, I remember being startled at the physical difference. Here was a gal that was petite, attractive, fresh, crisp, clean, looking gal. I was prepared for a change because she had come to Lord Jesus Christ. I was startled to realize how pervasive that appeared to be in that encounter. But ask any police officer that you may have uh, access to uh, intimately about what really goes on in these metropolitan areas. Ask them about covens. Ask them about stolen, the frequency of stolen animals or stolen children. In fact, there's a major traffic in stolen children for use in satanic ritual. And so uh, these things are, are heavy, they're serious. And this, this is not limited to the lunatic fringe. Some of us probably dismiss this as well. That's part of a large culture that we have these strange creeps at the fringes of our society. No, it's become a commanding presence of almost irresistible persuasion throughout our society. In one form or another, almost everyone in our culture will sooner or later be exposed to the dangerous entanglements of the occult in one shape or another. The, word, the English word occult comes from the Latin occultus, which means to cover up, hide, or conceal. The purpose of the occult, in whatever form you want to frame it, is to deceive. Now, it is not simply a philosophy or a pastime. It is the domain of very powerful, sentient, hostile, super beings who have a vigorous agenda to destroy you personally. That's their agenda. There were many false concepts in ancient Israel. If you were a member of the nation Israel, wandering through the wilderness in the days of Moses, and you had the belief that the earth was flat, what was the consequence of that? Probably nothing. With a little imagination, I could probably make a list of superstitions that you might believe that about which the Bible is silent. It doesn't attempt to deal with every conceivable weird idea you might have picked up by some misconception about reality. And yet, if you were caught doing a horoscope, if you were caught doing the equivalent of what is in our culture a Ouija board or tarot cards, what was the result? Death. Those techniques, those practices, those rituals were a capital crime, not because Moses had some weird thing in his craw, because God commanded it. Why? Why would God emphasize, call their attention to the gravity of these strange, childish pastimes? Because they're dangerous. 
They're dangerous. Not just weird superstitions. They are what's called entries. Now, the reality of the spirit world is no longer ignored or denied by secular science. There's been a number of projects uh, throughout the recent decades uh, which have made parapsychology, or call it by other labels, apparently a legitimate field of research. J.B. Ryan, funded heavily by the Xerox Corporation and others, has formed the Parapsychology Lab at Duke University. And there's other equivalent kinds of institutions around the world. And uh, they promote the notion that psychic powers are natural abilities in all or some people. That's sort of the general view of the uh, parapsychology literature, that some people seem to be gifted with certain gifts, certain abilities. This itself is one of the occultic delusions. And uh, one of the things that uh, will, if you get into the research and do the homework, you'll discover that people who exhibit these kind of skills are getting assistance from the dark side, if I can use that as a figure of speech. Let me make reference to one item that I have a little bit of experience with, and that is how many of you have seen the movie The Exorcist? Remember that? Some time ago. Uh, in those days, I was on a board with Walter Martin, and Walter Martin set out to debunk that. He was offended by the movie because the movie sort of, in a sense, had Satan win. And so he was very upset about that, and he did some homework on William Blatty, the author of the book that, from which they made the movie. And he was startled to discover that this guy was legitimate. This guy had done his homework. The novel, obviously fictional, was drafted largely from a series of case studies, in fact, one particular one, in New Jersey. It happened to be a boy, not a girl, as was featured in the novel and used in the movie. But much, not all, but much of what was portrayed in that rather bizarre movie was taken from actual case study experience. I'm also reminded of a bizarre event that we had uh, Walter, in those days, would come to the West Coast. He was based in Wayne, New Jersey. The Christian Research Institute was in Wayne, New Jersey in those days. But we used to book Walter on the West Coast. And Walter's style was to be to come out on the West Coast for like maybe two weeks. And we'd do a Sunday night at some church, followed by a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, a three or four night thing on some topic. Uh, his famous book, The Kingdom of the Cults, was, is still a classic to this day. And often much of his presentations were having to do with the uh, deviant pseudo-Christian groups, groups that call themselves Christian that really aren't. But this particular trip, he planned to, uh, what he'd do, he'd do this typically two churches. Uh, typically, uh, one of the, the venues would be uh, St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church in Newport Beach for a few nights, and then he typically some other church in, in Rural Inley in those days, running at Granada Heights Friends Church, would be also a comfortable venue for Walter to do a, a, a series. And we used to tape Walter in those days for albums of tapes for him, for his own benefit and for his ministry. And we had done a series called Kingdom of the Cults, the packaging matching the book that was so famous at that time that he did. he's done, it's still a classic, sort of a, a white book with orange and black uh, uh, accents. Well, he decided he wanted to do a series called The Kingdom of the Occult. So we had revisioned black albums with real deliberately spooky kind of covers. And so he, did, he, he wanted we, to accumulate the tapes, the eight tapes for the, for the uh, uh, series. Uh, he did a series at St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church. And he opened Sunday night with a general presentation on the occult, somewhat of the flavor we're dealing with tonight. But he dramatized or got the audience's attention by opening his presentation with a detailed discussion of a demon possession experience in New Jersey 
that he drew upon to dramatize to the audience the reality of these things today. When you think of demon possession, you think of the book of Acts or something, or the Gospels. No, it happens today. And he went through all of this. It was quite dramatic. Well, an interesting thing occurred that Sunday night. Walter, having just traveled from Wayne, New Jersey, out there, it was, he was on East Coast time. By the time we were through with the questions and answers and stuff, it was 10 or 11 o'clock, but it was like 2 a.m. his time. And I was trying to get Walter free of the crowd to go to the Newport Inn and crash and get some rest. And a friend of mine had with him a uh, couple, man and wife, and their psychiatrist, and Larry came up to me and says, they, these people have to talk to Walter. And I says, Larry, let's be gracious. Walter is exhausted. Let's schedule it sometime while he's out here, but not tonight. Larry says, trust me, he's got to see them. And Walter agreed to do that. He says, let's not do it here. Let's, let's meet me in my room at room 137, Newporter Inn, down the coast a little bit from where we were. Okay. So they drive over to the Newporter Inn, and as they pull into the parking slot, it happened the car that, that had the visitors from Long, from Long Beach in the car next to them. And Walter turned to Larry and says, let's pray. Walter somehow sensed something was up. When he got out of the car, the gal, the wife, didn't want to get out of the car. And Walter says, they won't let you, will they? And that got everybody's attention. Walter somehow sensed what was going on here. Well, I won't go through the whole details, but the net of it is, is that um, the psychiatrist, who was originally not, a, I don't believe, a believer, denominationally uh, at best, the husband and a handful of men, spent most of the night holding this gal down while they had a classic Old Testament exorcism. Strange voices, strange experiences. Before it was all over, she was delivered, praise God. I met the couple a year later, and the husband said uh, he's got a whole new wife. It was a wonderful, wonderful experience. But it happened that the following Sunday night, we were recording the same series of messages at Granada Heights Friends Church. And Walter gets up there and does the same message he, did, he had done at St. Andrews the previous week previous Sunday night, except <laughs> instead of talking about the guy in New Jersey, he recounted what happened at the New Porter Inn six days earlier at, uh, in room, I think it was 137 at the New Porter Inn. And so if you can track down a, a, a copy of that uh, tape set, you will hear Walter recount in detail what happened at the New Porter Inn. Now these things are real. The other things that you'll encounter are these things called ghosts. That sounds like something out of literature, kind of a fiction. There's a whole body of literature about poltergeists. It's, it comes from a German word, polter meaning to make noise by throwing or tumbling around, and geist is their word for spirit or ghost. There are over a thousand books published in English this century alone, on poltergeists alone. Poltergeist activity occurs every day of the week. And we could go on and on about this. Most of us, most people read this read it with a, a jaundiced eye, and maybe a lot of what you do read is a little bit of nonsensical. But let me tell you one thing that you people in this room were at least close to. You may recall that I used to come down to this church. I used to, when I operated out of Big Bear, I used to have my Tuesday nights here. And I used to do Wednesday morning breakfast nearby, and then Wednesday night at Costa Mesa. That was my cycle. I came down from Big Bear, did my Tuesday night thing here, spent the night in Hal's home. I'd meet him in a study, and we'd wrap till 2 or 3 in the morning on various things. Then in the morning, I did a men's Bible study over at Marie Callender's nearby, and then headed down to Orange County and did my Costa Mesa thing Wednesday night, and then headed back to Big Bear. That was my cycle. Did that for some time here, and that's one reason this congregation is very dear to me, because you guys were, when I first started doing this full-time, you were one of the congregations that was behind me when, when very few others were, and I appreciate that. 
But I have to tell you about an event. Uh, Hal had a guest, had a special guest room, and I normally, when I stayed at Hal's home, he had a very comfortable home, and he and Kim were very gracious to receive me, and I used to stay at this guest room. Uh, that was my little routine. I'd, after here, I'd, at rapping with you guys, I'd head up there, and, and typically Hal and I would have some cappuccino or something and just rap one whatever was going on, and uh, that was those were very precious days. But this one particular time that I was there, they were doing some remodeling, and the room that I was normally in was not available. Well, there's another room that was down the hall. Hal said, well, you can use the such and such room, and so that's fine. And, but as, they, as uh, I was getting ready to go to bed after three of this, Kim and Hal were looking at each other kind of strangely. And I was trying to pick up this, and Kim said to Hal, you're not going to tell him. And Hal was a little embarrassed. Because Hal had planned not to tell me just to see what would happen. <laughs> But after discussing it between the two of them, sort of as inside, Hal leveled with me. Because none of their guests had ever survived an evening in that room. His girls that sometimes stayed with him uh, after a night or two would not stay in that room. And he started telling me all these strange experiences. This particular room in his home seemed to be subject to strange goings-on. So much so that Hal confided to me that one night he decided to sleep in this room. He woke up in the middle of the night floating about a foot off the bed and it scared the crap out of him. <laughs> so what they were going to do apparently, Halzell thought, was just, let's just not tell Chuck and see what happens. a neat guy, but he has a mischievous streak in him. <laughs> well, what Hal and I did is we kneeled by the bed in that room and prayed, and bound the forces of darkness with prayer, and uh, candidly, nothing happened that night. It was uneventful. I think Hal and I were both kind of disappointed the next morning when I gave him a progress report. <laughs> they did discover that apparently the previous owner of that home used to have seances in that room. And uh, they, I believe since they have remodeled the room, they've torn off the wallpaper, they've virtually rebuilt the room and so forth. And I haven't, I, forget, I meant to call Hal and get an update before mentioning this on uh, something openly like this, but uh, I suspect that that's a thing of the past. However, it's interesting, there seems to be uh, both experiential and biblical basis that demons tend to be territorial. They're confined to certain geographies. We find that in Daniel 10, they're, 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 they're the super demons are in fact tied to certain empires and so forth, but also from other experiences we get a sense at least as we research this area that for some strange reason demons tend to be tied to certain areas or certain history. And I suggest that all of you, if you own a home or living somewhere, give some thought to walking the property line and exercise. You do not know the spiritual history of that piece of real estate. You don't know that it may have been way, way back in the past, the subject of ritual applications, and you may want to do that. Uh, I went down to Murrieta Hot Springs. They, as you know, Calvary Chapel has acquired the famed Murrieta Hot Springs, and they're refurbishing the whole place to be a conference center. And that's got an unusual history in its own sense. I mentioned to Chuck. I says, Chuck, have you uh, walked the property line? He knew what I meant. He turned to me and says, every day every day. So I share that with the thing. Now, when you start talking about these kinds of things, there are typically at least three theories regarding the occult. 
The medium, mediumistic theory is that poltergeists and such are somehow the roaming spirits of the dead. Now that's a widely held view by many authors and experts. It is non-biblical. That's one of the agendas of the demons is to promote that idea because the Bible clearly teaches that the spirits of the dead are confined either heaven or hell. And there's a lot of scripture. I don't have to go through all of that. Matthew 25, Luke 16, 2 Peter 2, 9, and other, a lot of passages that nail that to the wall. So that's a fiction that is promoted by the dark side. A second uh, series of explanations are that, well, this is parapsychological that somehow this constitutes some kind of human phenomenon resulting from psychic or psychokinetic abilities. There's lots of literature in that area. And that is also uh, very close to the New Age related. And again, even uh, uh, scientists and so forth uh, discover there's things that are hard to explain without recourse to supernatural phenomenon. And uh, this is obviously, by the way, well refuted in biblically based uh, research. And of course, the third explanation, and that is that these things are caused by demons. And uh, that leads to a whole study that I encourage you to go in depth. We won't be able to do that all tonight, but I encourage you to, uh, if, the, if the Spirit leads you, to do some homework about the nature of demons. Now, just to uh, highlight a few of these things, turn, I won't go through all of them, but turn to Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18. There are many, many passages that we could talk about in the Old Testament. I'm just going to take a few pivotal ones to get you, give you the flavor. Anyone with a reasonable uh, resource base to study Bible or some concordances can run with this on their own. But Deuteronomy chapter 18, picking up verse 9. In the Torah itself, in the highly venerated five books of Moses, we find statements as follows. Deuteronomy 18.9. When thou shalt come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not learn to do after the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who maketh his son or daughter to pass through the fire. I won't ask for a show of hands if any of you have had your kids pass through the fire. We'll let that one go. But let's look at the rest of it. Or who uses divination. Or an observer of times. That's a translation from the Hebrew, the, the, the subject being astrology. Not astronomy. And don't get uh, upset because astronomy happens to use lots of classic labels for their what I'll call their geography of the heavens. But we're talking astrology, totally different thing. Or an enchanter, or a witch, or a charmer, or a consulter of channels or mediums. Any of you been talking to Eleanor Roosevelt lately? Okay. <laughs> Or, <laughs> or a wizard. Or a necromancer. Necromancy being the attempt to communicate with the dead. For all that do these things are an abomination unto the Lord, and because of these abominations the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee. Most of us, if we've encountered these areas, tend to dismiss them as the domain of charlatans. Boy, I wish it was so. So, well, these mediums that try to prey upon recent widows to bring back their beloved husband in some kind of sense, that these people are charlatans exploiting the sensitivities of the grieving relatives. If that were all, it would just be a tragic social comment. The truth of the matter is that some of these things are really dangerous. Those that have ministries, Christian ministries, aimed at the Mormons have a tough time because many of the Mormons will speak 
of some of their rituals where their departed dead come and appear. And it's very, very difficult to deal with someone who has had that experience and try to tell them that that was demonic. A demonic counterfeit. And yet that's a very, very real daily occurrence. Well, yeah, frequent occurrence. Now, all these strange practices... By the way, let's talk, let's talk about astrology. Anyone that knows anything about astronomy typically will laugh at the whole concept of astrology. Because there have been some planets that have been discovered in more recent years, and they're not part of the horoscope literature. You know, and you can play around with that. You talk about the gravitational influences of the planets. The gravitational influence of the gynecologist is far more significant than Uranus or Saturn or whatever. And uh, someone has suggested they were going to have a jetology. They were going to have plot the location of all the 747s at the instant you were born. You know, and, and of course you start talking about it. Their gravitational influence on you is greater than some of the planets out there. See, so this, you get into all of that, you see. And the other thing about astrology, it's fun to say, you know, astrology is obviously valid because that's why identical twins always have the same personality. Think about that. Of course they don't. They're conspicuously opposites, typically. And you can go on and on and debunk astrology as being nonsensical and preys on the uninformed. If it were that simple... It would be a harmless pastime, manifestation of nothing else but maybe some ignorance or lack of it being informed. No, it's dangerous because it can become an entry. It can be an entanglement with the occult. And by the way, something, the reason I brought up the William Blatty thing, I may not have mentioned it, the William Blatty story, the exorcist, and it was built on the, a true case study. What started that sequence of events was the little girl playing with the Ouija board. Here's a piece of plywood with a thing, and I mean, come on. No, the seeking after forbidden knowledge of that kind is, a, is a, an entanglement with the occult. See, the trap of things like that and the poltergeist phenomenon rest is to cause unsuspecting people to assume the worldview of the occult world, such as you know, mediumism or channeling, witchcraft, reincarnation, paganism. These are all tied together. And... Um, that's one reason I think so many of us are justifiably terrified of the federal enforcement of paganism in our schools. Not only is the biblical view prohibited, but that's compounded by the fact that neo-paganism is an enforced, federally supported, politically correct view in the schools. And now that's one reason demons have a vested interest in Halloween. Because it supports the occult and it offers novel and unexpected opportunities to control or influence people. And the Deuteronomy passage is one of many that we could quote in support of that. Now, the biblical realities are in contrast to that. All these myths of the afterlife are refuted. Hebrews 9.27 is appointed for man but once to die, and after this, the judgment. That verse is often quoted to somehow refute the idea that Moses and Elijah are the two witnesses in Revelation 11. Whether they are or not, the point is, that's not what that is for saying everybody only dies once. That's generally true. There are some exceptions, and I don't mean just Jesus Christ because he was resurrected. How many times did Lazarus die? Twice. Now, he wasn't really a resurrection in the true sense. He was brought back to life by the Lord. But, of course, they couldn't have him running around, so if you do your homework, you'll discover they plotted to kill him. And they ultimately had to. 
Now, the passage of Hebrews 9.27 is nothing more than a biblical refutation of reincarnation. It's interesting that the Hindu beliefs are very, very virtually identical to those beliefs that we now discover among the ancient Druids and heavily influenced by Hinduism and many of its concepts, not the least of which transmigration of the souls and, and the whole concept of reincarnation. Heavy, heavy element in Druidism. It underlies much of the belief structure that is, uh, supports Halloween and, and witchcraft and all that stuff. And uh, the unsaved dead, the Bible tells us, are presently confined in a place of torment, and the saved dead are in glory with Jesus Christ. In Luke 16, 2 Peter 2, 9, Philippians 1, 23, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 and 8, a lot of passages. See, the problem with poltergeist events of whatever kind, they tend to grant authority to the occultist, the psychic, or the spiritist, or the medium, or the channeler, or the parapsychologist, researcher, or whatever. Uh, and these are often used to mask the real activity of the demons. Wherever psychic powers are found, the spirit world is also found. Psychic power comes from the spirit world. It is not a natural human ability. I will make that quite clear. In fact, you remember in the book of Acts, a young girl that was a, was a medium or a spiritist, when she became saved, she lost that skill. Kind of interesting. Remember Hal speaks in early in his ministry, one of his first encounters with the occult. He was encountering a young girl, and among other problems she had, he discovered she could not speak the name of Jesus Christ. And that gave him the creeps to realize that there's something going on besides just a belief structure here. There's something deeper going on. People are not necessarily aware that the spirits are dwelling inside them. Part of the deception involved by the demons is for the subject to assume that they have some kind of natural psychic ability. That's part of the deception that's involved here. In part of this whole scenario, you encounter people who try to sell you the idea of what they glibly call white witchcraft. There's black witchcraft that's evil and bad, and there's white witchcraft that's good. And witchcraft is always evil. Now, the revisionist history continues to cast the witch and neo-pagan communities as those who would help both mankind and the planet Earth itself. And um, white witchcraft is just another one of these alluring deceptions that's part of the package. And painting witchcraft in a good or white, positive uh, light is one of the reasons for the su success of witchcraft, along with the general breakdown of Western culture. I remember Kelly Seagrave, uh, this was back some 20, more than 20 years ago, but Kelly Seagrave, an author, Christian guy, used to be associated with ICR, I think, creation people down south. But he used to, he used to run around California giving talks. Well, he somehow got invited to be a speaker at the Los Angeles Witchcraft Convention. As you probably know, once a year the, they gather in L.A., and, and, and a lot of these are just uh, science fiction writers and kooks and nuts, but a lot of them are very serious witches. Anyway, Kelly thought it would be a great idea to, you know, sort of present the gospel to these people. So he developed this talk, which sort of started out kind of spooky, but really was aimed at doing the gospel. He gets up before this crowd, and uh, every time he started to speak, he heard this loud screaming, sort of like the mics when they're up too high or something, you hear that loud scream. And he'd start to talk, and every time he started talking, he heard this loud screaming. And he looked around to see where it was coming from. But as he did, he noticed the audience wasn't looking. 
It took him a while to realize the audience wasn't hearing it. He knew he was in over his head. He somehow got through his speech and got out of there. He was, <laughs> he, uh, <laughs> you don't want to get into this area seriously unless you're really sure the Holy Spirit's calling you into it. As Walter used to quip, he says, I've never met a demon that I really liked. And so, Halloween practices are among these things that can open the door to the occult. And they can introduce forces in your life that you're not equipped to combat. If you look at any standard book on witchcraft or Samhain or Halloween, you'll discover that one of the greater sabbats, if you will, for the celebration of witchcraft is indeed Halloween. Some witches even arrange with their employers to have the day off for the special day. And some have even tried to seek that the schools would have a day off to celebrate Halloween, this greater sabbat, as they call it. Most satanic groups consider Halloween a special night as reflected in the view that Halloween has become, quote, the only day, uh, this, is a, this is an ancient tradition of Halloween, the only day in which it was believed that the devil could be invoked for help in finding out about future marriages, health, crops, and other things that were supposed to happen in the coming year. It was uh, Samhain, the new year of the Druids and the Celtic groups and so forth, and that was part of the game they played. Satanism and witchcraft uh, uh, share, of course, many commonalities, and uh, divergent emphasis of these various occultic practices can't obscure the commonalities in terms of the source of power, the psychic development, the anti-Christian worldview, the use of spirits, the use of evil, and so forth. Isaiah 47.9 emphasizes that there is genuine power in the occult, but it is a demonic power. And I won't go through all the verses. You can muster lots of verses, Old and New Testament, to support all that. And any serious study of biblical demonology will reveal, of course, Satan as the power behind all false religion, witchcraft, idolatry, and the occult. Now, one of the things I encourage you to do if you're serious about your Bible is you want to open up uh, uh, some notes for yourself and do some homework as to the, the, the biblical view, the biblical view of who Satan really was. He was an apostate angel who fell from heaven, Luke 10, 18, and, and, uh, and Jude and, Reve and Revelation 12, 9. He's called the tempter in 1 Thessalonians 3, 5. He's called wicked or evil in Matthew 13. He's called the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. He's called the prince of this world three times in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, 14, and 16. He's called the dragon and the serpent, Revelation 12 and 20. He's called a liar and murderer by Jesus Christ himself in John 8. He has a kingdom, Matthew 12, 26. That kingdom is hostile to Christ's kingdom, Matthew 16 and Luke 11. He rules a realm of demons. These aren't ancient ideas. These aren't quaint labels for past superstitions. These are dynamic, active realities today. His goal is to deceive the whole world, Revelation 12 and 13. He works in the children of disobedience. One of the things you need to realize, you may get confronted by people who aren't Christians. Some of those may be open to the gospel, praise God. Some of them may not be. They may be pawns of this malevolent entity. He deceives the whole world. He even works among the apostles, Matthew 16, Luke 22, and John 13. He opposes the people of God. That's why any ministry that you hold dear, one of the most powerful things you can do is commit yourself to prayer for it. Set up a schedule, a timetable. Many ministries set up when there's something critical going on. They have round-the-clock prayer. They get prayer watches. They have a watch bill like you would in the Navy. And people commit to prayer. Continue. So there's continual bathing of the ministry in prayer, especially during its critical engagements. 
Satan sows the seed of error and doubt in the church. If you see a false doctrine, a false idea moving through the body, don't be surprised to discover that the source of that is Satan. You see Christian groups attack other Christians because they have some heterodox view. They are accusing the brethren. Who is the accuser of the brethren? Satan. I was on a talk show recently where some guys published a book and he was disparaging certain people. I was among them. He was back east on a radio show. It happened that some of the listeners was a friend of ours, called our office. Within 10 minutes, I was on the phone to the host of that radio show, and we had a chance to go at it. And uh, here's again a guy that would pass himself off as a Christian, written some book, and yet what is he doing? He's accusing the brethren. I know where that doctrine comes from. That doesn't mean some criticisms might not be valid, but has he gone to that person first? And so forth, Matthew 18 and the rest of it. And uh, I'm very disturbed. I won't mention names just to be uh, diplomatic, but I'm very disturbed by certain groups in Southern California that are disparaging uh, their, their the reputation of the ministry by spending all their time uh, chasing errors among sincere Christian brethren. And I think that's tragic. I think Christianity is the only people that arranges their firing squads in circles. Satan is capable of possessing men, John 13, verse 27. He has the power of death, according to Hebrews 2.14. He prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking those he may devour, 1 Peter 5.8. We read that so often, we're familiar with that scripture. And do we have the attitude that you might... Suppose you're visiting the zoo with your kids. Suppose the word got out, hey, the lion is free, and he's wandering around loose in the zoo. What would you do? I think you'd probably pay attention and do something, right? That's true today. Satan's wandering about, looking for whom he may devour. His key abilities are power, deception, and cunning. He is the cunning enemy of all men, and there's about 20 scriptures that present that picture. He has great power, according to 2 Thessalonians 2.9, great subtlety, according to Genesis 3.1. He has treacherous snares, according to 2 Timothy 2.26. He has wiles that Ephesians 6.11 talks about, devices that 2 Corinthians 2.11 talks about, and he is capable of transforming and impersonating almost anything. Satan and his demons can impersonate anything. Incidentally, he's mentally imbalanced to the extent of being self-deluded. He attempted to gain the worship of God himself in Mark 1.13 and Matthew 4, first 10 verses. Now, when you get into this kind of a subject, sooner or later you'll encounter this question of the witch trials in Salem. The burning of the witches in Salem, Massachusetts continues to be a source of distortion and great irony in revisionistic history. In 1692, in, the, in those trials, Christians were accused, Christians died, Christians tried to stop the whole mess, and still, in spite of that history, you get the impression when you read about this in, 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 in many of the secular journals, that Christianity gets the blame for those things, that that somehow is attributed to overzealousness on the part of the Puritans. No, it was an attempt to destroy the Christians. Far more ministers were taking a stand against those trials than were lending themselves to it. Now, one of the ways we've prattled on here, and obviously it's not hard because there's lots of literature available on this. Um, Merrill Unger's book, Demonology, is one of the classics. There's many, many classic books on demonology. If you, if you want to build your library, it's easy to do. But let's uh, take the opportunity to look in a little, more, in a little more substantive basis witchcraft, an example of it that's often misunderstood in the Bible.
And we're going to, well, you can get prepared here, we're going to head for 1 Samuel uh, 28. There's a very bizarre experience that occurs, it's recorded in God's Word, about Saul and this person at Endor. Now, in Saul's preoccupation with his pursuit of his rival David, he had neglected the growing Philistine threat to Israel. The Philistines undertook a new strategy and marched into the Jezreel Valley where they could use their chariots to advantage, just cutting Saul off from the northern tribes. That was tragic. He should not have done that. Militarily, it was stupid to let that happen. David at this time was not only in the Philistine army, but he'd also been appointed the bodyguard of King Achish in, in the first couple of verses of chapter 28 of 1 Samuel. And David's ambiguous response to Agish regarding his participation in the war with Israel was a stall for time. David was trying to, you know, anticipating God's deliverance from his peculiar predicament. He finds himself in this strange predicament, being in the Philistine army and the bodyguard of the king. By this time in the narrative here, Samuel has died. And we also find that there was no encouraging word to Saul from the Lord. Saul had previously removed mediums from the land and those delving into the realm of the occult. That is to be applauded. He was applying Deuteronomy 18 and Exodus 22 and Leviticus 19. He, that was the good news. The Philistines were encamped at Shunem, a, valley in the, a city in the valley of Jezreel, uh, situated on the south slope of the hill of Moreh. The Israelite forces were camped about five miles to the south of Mount Gilboa. Now Saul was so frightened but as he wakes up to the predicament he's in that he trembled greatly. It says in verse 5 of chapter, of chapter 28. He was gripped with fear. Saul was frightened. He tried to inquire of the Lord but the heavens were silent. God did not respond by dreams as he had to Joseph or by the Urim and Thummim as he had to the high priest in the past or by prophetic revelation as he had when Samuel was around. Now, God had given Saul many opportunities to repent and discover God's will, but he refused to do so. And this is described in chapter 19. We won't get into that here. Now, with the heavens silent, and not having a channel to Eleanor Roosevelt, Saul sought out a medium to enable him to determine the outcome of the battle with the Philistines. He's in a military predicament that's pretty serious. He's anxious to determine the outcome, so he decides to seek out a medium. He's informed by his servants that at Endor, between Mount Tabor and the hill of Murray, there lived a medium who somehow had escaped his purge. That's in verses mentioned in verse 3 and verse 7, 1 Samuel 28. And by the way, the Hebrew phrase here indicates a mistress of necromancy. That is, one who consults the dead to determine the future. That was her specialization, apparently. Now, I think you understand that the Old Testament law for occultic practices of any kind called for the death penalty for anyone that would consult with mediums. That's in Leviticus 19.31, Leviticus 20, verse 6 and 27, and of course Deuteronomy 18, which we just read. It turns out, by the way, this would be literally fulfilled in the case of Saul, because he will be dead the next day. So the death penalty, strangely enough, is operative in a way that uh, many people miss. Well, Saul disguises himself so he won't be recognized as the king. He traveled under the cover of darkness to Endor to consult with the medium. 
assuring her that he wouldn't that she would not be punished for practicing her forbidden profession he requested that she bring up Samuel from the dead now the medium carried out Saul's instructions but rather than using the tricks of her trade to deceive Saul she may have been a charlatan for all we know she was shocked to see an old man appear who Saul identified as Samuel now we got a problem right here. All kinds of people get upset with this. Hey, what's really going on here? Is it really Samuel? Is a demon impersonating Samuel? Is this some kind of trick from a charlatan? What's going on here? There's lots of views. Some have suggested that the appearance of Samuel was psychological in the mind of Saul. He's a distressed person. He's upset. This is some kind of hallucination by Saul. That doesn't fit the facts. The woman also saw Samuel. Saul actually talked with Samuel in verse 15. The woman saw Samuel in verse 12. Some of the early church fathers held the view that a demon impersonated Samuel and appeared to Saul. The problem with that is the, the message that's given in, in verses 16 through 19 could hardly have come from a demon. Others have concluded that the meeting was a fraud and tricked Saul into thinking he saw Samuel. No, the medium was shocked herself by Samuel's appearance in verse 12. And that would not have been the case if that was part of her trick. She was shook. She may have intended some kind of a trick. She may have had a usual medium or something, a spirit guide that helped her in these things. That wasn't operating. She is a rattled person. Or Jana Michelson might say, you never find a happy medium, right? Now, the rabbinical view... The traditional view of the rabbis is that verses 12 through 19 record a genuine appearance of Samuel that God himself brought about. There are at least five arguments toward that support this view. The fact that the meaning was surprised indicated something was happening that she was not expecting in verse 12. Saul identified the figure as Samuel and bowed down in respect for the prophet. It is unlikely that Saul, who knew Samuel so well, would easily have been tricked by an impersonation, although you could argue that demons are perfectly capable of creating perfect impersonations. The message that Samuel spoke was clearly from God in verses 16 through 19. In fact, we might want to take a look at that while we're talking about it. Verse 6 in 1 Samuel 28. I paraphrase this in the interest of time. In verse 16, though, Then said Samuel, Why then dost thou ask of me, seeing the Lord has departed from thee, and has not become thine enemy? And the Lord hath done to thee as he spoke by me, for the Lord hath torn the kingdom out of thine hand, and hath given it to thy neighbor, even to David. Because thou obeyest not the voice of the Lord, nor executed his fierce wrath upon Amalek, therefore hath the Lord done this thing unto thee this day. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with thee into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow shalt thou and thy sons be with me. And the Lord shall also shall deliver the host of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. And Saul fell immediately full length on the earth and was very much afraid, I can imagine. And because of the words of Samuel, see, the biblical record identifies this as Samuel. That's the problem. A lot of people have difficulty with that. There was no strength in him, and he had eaten uh, no bread at all uh, for the day and all the night. And then the woman came unto Saul and saw that he was very much troubled, said unto him, Behold, thine handmaid hath obeyed thy voice. I put my life in thy hand, in my hand, and have hearkened unto thy words which thou didst speak unto me. Now therefore I pray thee, hearken thou also unto the voice of thine handmaid, and let me set a morsel of bread before thee, and eat and that thou mayest have strength when thou goest thy way. But he refused and said, I will not eat. 
But his servants, together with the woman, compelled him, and he hearkened unto their voice. So he rose from the earth and, and uh, sat upon the bed. And the woman had a fat calf in the house, which he, when she hastened and killed it, and took flour and kneaded it, and baked the unleavened bread of it. She brought it before Saul and before his servants, and they did eat. They rose up and went away that night. Now, uh, the biblical text does say it was Samuel in verses 12, 15, and 16. And it's the clear intent, in my view, that the reader understand that Samuel actually appeared to Saul. This isn't the only case of someone who's died appearing. And the other case occurs, strange enough, at the transfiguration. That transfiguration. That's one of the reasons that I believe Moses and Elijah are the two witnesses of Revelation 11. But that's a whole other thing we can, we can look at later. But Samuel proceeded to remind Saul that the kingdom had been taken from him because of his disobedience in the Amalekite War. He then predicted Israel's defeat and the deaths to Saul and his sons at the hands of the Philistines. It's interesting that Samuel never answered Saul's initial question. What should I do? There was nothing that could be done. Because of his disobedience, his fate was sealed. And Saul was, of course, understandably terrified with this message of doom that, he, that Samuel communicated to him. And so after having this uh, nourishment, uh, he and the servants departed from Israel at, at Mount Gilboa. Now, at Mount Gilboa, the battle that follows is a disaster from the beginning. Saul's army was uh, quickly routed and slaughtered, including Saul's sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Melchizedek. Uh, the king himself was wounded by an arrow. In agony, Saul begged his armor bearer to thrust him through with a sword, but he refused. In desperation, Saul fell on his own sword and ended his life in ignominy. Ironically, Saul accomplished what David had refused to do, that is to take the life of the Lord's anointed king. And so great was Israel's defeat that many of the cities in northern Israel were abandoned as the citizens fled to regions safe from the Philistine menace. As a result, the Philistines were able to occupy many Israelite cities. And that's all in chapter 31, verse 7. When Saul's body was found by the Philistines, they dishonored it by cutting off the head, stripping off the armor, and hanging the naked body on a wall in the open square of Bethshan. That's in chapter 31, verse 10. Verses also recorded in 1 Chronicles 10. And by the way, Bethshan is one of the must-see places in Israel. If you're visiting Israel, you want to take the time to visit Bethshan for lots of reasons. It's an incredibly complete city that they've discovered and is on earth. It was also at one time called Scythiopolis. It was the place that the Scythians occupied for some time. It's very, very ironic that the Russian immigrants to Israel that can't find other work, they give them a welfare-type project to work at Bethshan to excavate. So we have the descendants of the Scythians discovering the city of the Scythians in Israel, kind of colorful, I think. But also, that's also the place that's very famous because of this event, because uh, the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead, uh, who had helped Saul early in his campaign, at great risk to themselves, went there and removed the bodies from the wall of Bethshan and gave them a proper burial. And a week of fasting as a sign of public mourning for the king was observed. Saul appeared full of promise as a young man. But he, he proved impulsive, prideful, and ended his life in disgrace. The great disgrace of Saul was his lack of obedience to the will and the word of God. I know that doesn't fit anyone in this room, but I mention it in passing here. Now, one of the things that um, 
is a problem at Halloween. As Halloween appears each year, Christians, especially Christians with children, have problems with that. Understandably, it's real difficult because do you let them participate in these very pagan customs? Or do you try to withdraw them and make them feel kind of weird for some reason? There's, there are people have, that's a very real problem. See, on the one hand, the participating in these, uh, in the perpetuation of these pagan and occultic rituals are hardly the enterprise of a biblical Christian. On the other hand, creating constructive alternatives can be challenging. What do you do with the kids at that time of year? And uh, many churches organize alternative activities that night. Harvest festivals uh, with games and prizes uh, is, is an approach, a constructive approach. They create a diversion, something that's more constructive than running around uh, trick-or-treating or whatever. And these are gaining widespread interest. There's lots of uh, good helps in many of the magazines. But another thought that I give you just as a thought, another possibility, especially if you've got high schoolers, junior high and high schoolers, uh, is to get them involved in putting on a play. And one of the plays that would lend itself as an interesting, uh, a play that would capture the flavor of the holiday on the one hand, yet be biblically sound, is have them put on the play of Saul and the Witch of Endor. And it's not hard to do your own biblical homework and put together a play. Uh, we held a few years ago a playwriting contest. And we had a lot of entries across the country. We had a, a panel of judges that was chaired by Frank Peretti himself, the famed author of This Present Darkness and Piercing the Darkness, and you know, probably one of the, probably the most successful Christian fiction writer. And uh, out of all the entries, we picked four that got prizes, and we published those four are available from K House if you have a group that would like to do this. Uh, those plays are quite, they're four quite different ones, all dealing with this basic, you know, the Saul and the Witch and Ender. They were judged on the basis of being biblically accurate, being creative, and yet also being appropriate in dramatic content for a high school group. So that's available if you're interested. There's another uh, thing that occurred on October 31, and that was Martin Luther nailing his uh, 95 theses to the castle door at Wittenberg. And that's another area, it's easy to research and could lend itself to a play with some creativity. For those that are in a situation with maybe a little more secular flavor and yet want to do something like this, there's a interesting play, if you're into plays, called The Lady is Not for Burning by Christopher Fry. It's just a secular excursion, but kind of fun if I remember it correctly. Uh, before recommending, I should go back and reread it. But as I recall, it would be a challenging, interesting diversion, adult entertainment, if you will. We can't talk about this area without mentioning something else. There's another dimension of the occult that's resurfacing in our society. I say resurfacing because it used to be here long ago and it's coming back in spades. And uh, that's called unidentified flying objects. There are lots of books out. There have been for years. There's lots of recent ones where all kinds of researchers have set out to debunk these bizarre stories of UFOs. It's interesting that most of the serious researchers that have chased this down to debunk end up being zealously committed to the reality of UFOs. Three of our Apollo astronauts have confirmed UFO sightings on their missions. So these things are not hallucinations, they're not imaginary, they're real. As you investigate things, you, these things you discover, they leave tangible evidences, they're scorching of the ground, there's things that happen that are tangible. On the one hand, on the other hand, they also defy physical laws as we know them. At very high speeds, they make right angle turns and such. So you, as you read some of these stories, they, they obviously are not physical in the sense you and I think of them. They are, if you will, paraphysical. What's interesting is that Harvard Medical School, apparently uh, some time ago, did a survey. 
and the results of the survey startled them. They, I think, were approaching this just as a medical problem, as a loosen, you know, as a psychiatric problem or something. But they came to the conclusion by conducting a survey that one person in 50 has seen a UFO. They have come to the conclusion that one in a thousand has claims to have been abducted by one of these UFOs. Now that is so widespread that startled them. Now whether these experiences are hallucinogenic or whether these things are real is a whole big argument among people. But the phenomenology is real. There are real people who really, and most of them won't remember this except under phenobarbital or some other form of, of uh, recounting memory of filling in time that they've, you know, of, of gaps in their, in their timelines. So it's a spooky thing. These things are real and getting bigger and bigger all the time. They have gone from the lunatic fringe atmosphere of the 50s to the point where today it's very common themes in entertainment. There are lots of, lots of very serious research in this area. All the research that we've done so far confirms on the one hand that they're real, on the other hand that they're paraphysical. That is, they're demonic. The myth that they are promoting themselves, that is, the, the, the powers behind these things, are that they are somehow aliens from another part of the galaxy or something. That seems to be refutable by the absence of visibility in remote sensing equipment, be it uh, spacecraft or be it powerful telescopes. It's interesting, these things are seen on the Earth, they're not seen in space, where in, in theory at least they should be, if this is what they really are. I think most of the competent researchers that have a biblical background argue that these things are feigning or, or masquerading as aliens, they are actually demonic. Hal Lindsey and Dave Hunt both, when we've shared platforms recently, have declared from the public platform, they each in their own way, have mentioned publicly, they would not be surprised if the coming world leader, call me Antichrist or whatever you will, is somehow connected with a demon connection, with an with a alien connection with, with something of this kind. What brings this to mind is Jesus' own remarks, where he says that as the days of Noah were, so shall the days of the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, if you take that expression by our Lord denotatively, precisely, all he might mean by that is as in the days of Noah, where people were buying and selling and giving in marriage and whatever, right up until the flood, it was business as usual until the flood hit, that's clearly, it certainly includes that view. But many that see this also suspect that Jesus may also be really speaking more connotatively in a broader sense. And this gives rise to a very critical biblical issue. And uh, you might turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. Because most people who study the occult don't really plant one of their foundations right here in Genesis chapter 6. I personally tend to view the days of Noah as being far more interesting than the flood of Noah. After chapter 6, we've got the flood, the ark, all of that stuff. And it's very interesting. There are lots of books written about this. Uh, we could spend a lot of time on that. I think what's much more fascinating to me are the conditions that apparently led to the flood. Let's read Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the Benai Elohim, the sons of God, saw the daughters of men that they were fair. And they took them wives of all whom they chose. Down to verse 4. 
There were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God, the Elohim, came in unto the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, the same became the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. The early church, the early church fathers, viewed this passage as meaning exactly what it says. The term Benai Elohim appears four times in the Old Testament. Each time it refers to angels. These angels, they're bad guys. They were apostate angels. What did they do? They came down upon the earth and somehow were able to interbreed with human women giving rise to an unnatural child called the Nephilim. The word Nephilim in the Hebrew, that's the term it's actually called in here, comes from the Hebrew word Nephal, which means fallen ones. The Nephilim were the fallen ones. In the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, that word is translated gigantes, which means in the Greek, earthborn. They were earthborn angels. Because the word gigantes, it was transliterated by some translators, and they called them giants. They were, in fact, giants, but that's not what the language is focusing on. They do turn out to be giants, by the way. But that's, that's, that's what causes people to overlook the fact that there's a mistranslation involved. There were giants in the earth, the Nephilim in those days, the fallen ones. The myths of ancient cultures also embody this event in their memory, through their legends. Greek titans come from the same root word that in Chaldean are shaitans, that in the Hebrew are called Satan. These things are demonic. Now, when you get to about the third or fourth century, Cyril of Alexandria, uh, there was criticism of the Bible that made fun of this, this weird stuff of the angels and all this stuff. So Cyril of Alexandria conceived a rebuttal saying well these really weren't angels these were the lines of Seth we had uh, of the lines descending from Adam we had the lines of Seth they were the good guys they were faithful and the others were unfaithful and you have this argument that's the lines of Seth as we're talking about and that view is held today by many many serious Bible teachers it is full of holes it is unfaithful to the text it's unfaithful to the ancient commentators of the early church. It also doesn't make sense in the text. When a believer and an unbeliever get together and get married and have children, their children are not abnormal in a physical sense. Furthermore, go back to chapter 4, last verse, Seth had a son by the name of Enosh. And the last sentence of chapter 4 is mistranslated in the English, and any competent study Bible points this out to you. It says, Unto Seth, unto him also was born a son who called his name Enosh, which incidentally comes means to defy or profane or mortal. Then it says, Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. That's a mistranslation. What it actually says is, Then men began to profane the name of the Lord. Enosh, the son of Seth, leads to. The, the profaning of God's word that follows. So the lines of Seth were not the good guys. They were just, in fact, if the lines of Seth were somehow special, why were they destroyed in the flood? You see, that whole line of argument, and with all due apologies to Hank Hanegraaff and others, doesn't make sense. It's not faithful to, to history. It's not faithful to sound exegesis. It's not faithful to what the text says. 
Now, when you get down here, God, of course, saw that the wickedness was great in the earth, but Noah, in verse 8, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Then we get to verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man, and it says here, perfect in his tetelodoth, perfect in his genealogy. See, Noah was among those that was not corrupted by the strategy of Satan to corrupt the human race to prevent the emergence of the Messiah. This is one of the many stratagems that Satan attempted to thwart the plan of God. But God uh, chose Noah and his sons, had them build a boat, and wiped out the world. And he wiped out all the animals. The scripture doesn't talk about this, but the ancient Greek myths do. And some of this was going on with animals. Remember all the strange legends about those? And I say, well, gee, if this is here, is it somewhere else in the scripture? Yes. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. Peter talks about this. The second letter of Peter in chapter 2 talks about false teachers. There were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who secretly shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. Many shall follow their pernicious ways by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now for a long time lingereth not, and their destruction slumbereth not. But if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to Tartarus, that word only occurs here in the New Testament. Translated hell in your English. Tartarus is used in Homer. It's a, we try to track down the word how it's used in the Greek. It turns out Tartarus was viewed as being as far below hell as hell is below the earth. It's sort of the extreme of portion of hell. They were cast into Tartarus and delivered into the chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, and so forth. In other words, this is sort of tied to the days of Noah. What were they? They were angels that sinned. Where are they? They're chained. When do they get released? Some people think these are the things that are released in Revelation chapter 9. Spooky stuff going on. Let's also move over here to Jude, the book of Jude. Here's a book written by the brother of the Lord himself. A little short, but very, very uh, pithy little book with all kinds of insights. In verse 6 of the book, Epistle of Jude, he says, And the angels who kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, hath he reserved in everlasting chains, under darkness, under the day of judgment, judgment day. And the context of this as concatenation here is they also, as he mentions verse 7, went after strange flesh. Jude's point is if, if God didn't spare them, is he going to spare you? The Epistle of Jude and also Second Peter are dealing with apostates. Well, the question is, what's going on? Orbit number 35 of Viking 1, passing over the Sidonia region of Mars, captures a picture of a monument a mile wide that's a symmetrical, apparently, a symmetrical face of a man. Big controversy. What's going on here? NASA is shifting gears. NASA has stonewalled this for years. Hoagland and others have been trying to thump up interest in this area are looked upon as kooks and nuts. NASA refuses to deal with this. Now suddenly NASA, realizing they need funding, discovers there may have been life on Mars with the most contrived logic you can imagine. And scientists themselves are putting that where it belongs. In the rebuttals of that foolishness that they've been trying to promote. And indeed, the pagan culture, the New Agers will have a field day, as indeed we can expect they will discover all kinds of things that imply that there is life in the universe, if there is. Microscopic life, whatever. A lot of that's contamination from the earth, by the way, but I won't get into all that here. 
We have a briefing called The Mysteries of Planet Mars, which goes into some of this. But the real point is, suddenly they're going to be taking a more serious look at this. Now they've discovered that there's water on the satellite uh, of uh, Europa, of Jupiter. And so all these kinds of things are starting to fan the flames. And, well, you know, we've got to rethink all of the theological positions of the Bible. Nonsense. Nonsense. The Word of God promises you that there's going to be massive delusions in the end times. And God himself is going to send them strong delusions that they will believe the lie. What lie are we talking about? The lie that denies the Creator and denies the redemption that he has made available through his Son. So you can expect the New Agers to have the advantage of all kinds of pseudoscientific discoveries. And over the coming months and years, especially as these observers and other things are being going to land on Mars here next summer, you can expect all kinds of rumbles of facts or pseudo-facts of various kinds to paint the picture that, well, life really came from outer space and all that stuff. And uh, they have to have life come from outer space because they now realize there wasn't time or materials to have life evolve on the planet Earth. So their approach is, well, they must have evolved somewhere else. They'll do anything except simply accept the logical truth that it was designed very skillfully by somebody for a purpose. And uh, so on it goes. The UFO thing, the uh, aliens from outer space thing, all these things are elements or subdivisions, if you will, of what I'll co collectively call the world of the occult. You say, gee, Chuck, that's all very interesting. What do we do about it? Well, first of all, no matter how much you study, it'll be insufficient. Your intellect, no matter how powerful it is, no matter how well-informed you are with information, will not help you avoid being deceived. Why? Because it's a spiritual battle, not an intellectual exercise. It's a spiritual battle. The scripture says that if it were possible, it would deceive the very elect. Implying, of course, it won't be possible. Why? Because of the Holy Spirit. If you study 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, you know that the Holy Spirit is a restrainer, restraining sin. God, the only God that restrains sin. The restrainer is restraining sin until he be taken out of the way. And if you study 2 Thessalonians 2, very key prophetic passage. But let me mention in passing, it's my personal view that the restrainer is restraining far more than you and I have any idea. The UFO experiences, the occultic experiences on the planet Earth today, widespread as they are, are still relatively underground, relatively constrained, relatively limited. Can't really touch you. Why? Because greater than is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Who is the God of this world? Satan. Who is in you? The Holy Spirit. And incidentally, Jesus Christ and the Father. Many people have a very myopic view of what that indwelling really means. And you can get our package called the... Uh, spiritual gifts and or the thing on the Trinity and discover it's the Father and the Son that will dwell you. They are, in fact, a unity as well as a Trinity. But the point is, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So don't get spooked by this quick survey tonight. If you have the Holy Spirit, if you are in Jesus Christ, you have him dwelling in you. Now, that's no reason to sit back on your laurels. You need to do some spiritual homework and arm yourself. And that leads me, once again, to point you, among other places, to Ephesians chapter 6. Because in Ephesians chapter 6, there is the armor of God. Let's just take a quick, hurried review of Ephesians chapter 6. In verse 10, Paul says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God. That's an imperative. You're supposed to do something. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand the wiles of the devil. That's an imperative. You're supposed to do something. Put on the whole armor of God. When do you do that? After the battle started? No, you do it right now. You're already on enemy territory. 
For he wrestled not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, and against the rulers of darkness. Those are hosts of demons, by the way. Against spiritual wickedness in high places. And he's not talking about Washington, D.C., although you conclude that. It's far worse than that. It's the high places in the sense of the spiritual realm. Wherefore, take on you the whole armor of God. There it is again. They're having your loins girded about with truth. Find out what that means. The belt was that upon which everything else hung. That's where you start, with truth. And uh, having on the breastplate of righteousness, the breastplate protected the vitals. A piercing of that was usually fatal. Find out what that means. What is the breastplate of righteousness? Do the homework. Having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. If you have any hand-to-hand -hand combat training, your footwork's essential. Where is your footwork? Is it involved with the preparation of the gospel of peace? And above all, taking the shield of faith. That's the maneuverable part of your armor. If it has any holes in it, you fix it before the battle. If you've got holes in your shield of faith, fix them now. If you've got a doubt or a problem, do the homework. Plug that hole. In verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. A sword is your offensive weapon, but it's useless unless you've been trained. The Romans conquered the world with a short sword, 24-inch pachyra, double-edged, radical in its day. But it's useless unless you've been specially trained and had a lot of training with it. But with the special training, they could close in and they conquered the world with it. Find out about how you use your sword. Uh, just, just having it handy with a few tabs ain't enough. You really need to command it. You need to know where to find your ammunition when you need it. And then, they, then you get to the heavy artillery, verse 18. Praying always. That's your action at a distance. If you find yourself engaged in something, prayer is your main resource. So I encourage you, if you uh, also, if you haven't taken a good look at our briefing package called Armor in the Age of Deceit, it basically focuses a more intensive study of Ephesians chapter 6, and I encourage you to do your homework. But you and I are in combat. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just praise you that you have gathered us here together. For we have gathered in your name. We thank you, Father, that Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. As fearful, as terrifying, as, as frightening as these forces that, of darkness that beset us, as frightening as they are, Father, we take refuge in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that you have provided a redemption that's available for the asking. And we pray, Father, if there's any among us that have yet to discover that, that they would right now not leave this room before, in the privacy of their own will, before your throne, just confess before your throne their need for you and, and request you to take over. We pray, Father, that if there's any in this room that have been, had an entanglement of any kind in the past with the occult, that they would right now before your throne acknowledge that, confess ownership of it, and refute it before your throne. We pray, Father, that every one of us would reject specifically before your throne any of the entanglements we've had with the occult in whatever form it was, that we might be truly freed from this entanglement. We pray, Father, we confess this as sin, for we all have had some kind of entanglement here. We confess it as sin, Father, and we just refute it before your throne. We deny it. We deny Satan and all his works and all his ways. We ask you, Father, for Jesus Christ to take over, that you, through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, that we might be equipped, be effective for you. We thank you, Father, for that redemption that you have provided, that pardon for all our sins. It's available just for the asking. This right here, my friends, is the island.